Alright, what is up, all you good, beautiful, wonderful citizens of Crypt Nation? It's your host, Bryce Paul, and we have a special announcement. Uh, if you guys have been tuning in, you will know that we have the Crypto 2020 Summit that we are hosting. Uh, this is going to be January 29th to January 31st. We got over 60 of the biggest, baddest speakers in crypto presenting on their projections for 2020, what their projects are going to be doing, all sorts of fun forecasts. It's going to really be amazing. And the best part of it all is it's free and it is online. So go ahead to www.crypto2020summit.com and register for your free ticket, and we hope to see you there. All right, what is up, all you good, wonderful citizens of Crypt Nation? I hope you are having just a delightful morning, noon, and or night, because no matter where you are in the world, whether in, you're in the UK, like our guest David Carlisle today, or whether you're in sunny San Diego, like Pete's mine and I, you're in the right place. And Pete's, how are you doing, brother? It is so early in the morning. I don't know where I am or how I am. Let's just get on with the show. All right. Well, that's definitely, <laughs> that's definitely one way to go about things. It's uh, going to be David. a great day. Just kidding. <laughs> David, uh, thank you for joining us. How, how goes it? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's uh, late in the day here, so I don't, I don't know where i am either but uh, <laughs> you guys have just been just been busting out news announcement after news announcement over at elliptic uh you're the head of community at elliptic and there's so many exciting things that you guys are doing in the compliance space and in the risk assessment space and the blockchain tracking world um so so you know at a high level i mean you used to work at the u.s treasury as well so i i, def- I definitely love to start off the conversation with you know what First off, what is the U.S. Treasury for those who are listening who you know might have heard of it and don't really understand what their role in the in the economy is? Uh, so, if you could break that down and what your role there was, and then kind of what was the impetus for you to get into crypto and, and start building crypto companies? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the U.S. Treasury, broadly speaking, as you mentioned, uh, you know, is an agency of the U.S. government that is really tasked with. Um, making sure the U.S. economy and banking system are healthy and are thriving and are uh, and are functioning with integrity, and that includes all sorts of things like um, involvement in, in setting broad uh, policy and regulation around banking, um, to involvement in, in monetary policy and international relations when it comes to dealing with other governments around the world about how to uh, you know manage the stability and integrity of the international financial system and. One very significant component of that, I mean, increasingly significant component of that uh, at the U.S. Treasury is ensuring that the U.S. financial system is protected against threats and financial crime, things like terrorist financing, things like the threat of rogue actors like North Korea and the threat that they pose to the integrity of the international financial system, Um, money laundering, bribery and corruption, uh, any behavior that jeopardizes the integrity of U.S. financial institutions and exposes the U.S. financial system to risk. It's part of the Treasury's mission to make it harder for those types of actors to access the U.S. financial system and to try to find ways to to really uh, shut down and and manage and mitigate those threats. And there's an office within the U.S. Treasury called the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, uh, which was created shortly after 9-11, which is task with just that, with setting U.S. policy 
when it comes to protecting the U.S. financial system from financial crime. Um, so I joined the U.S. Treasury uh, as an intern originally, actually, I think in 2006 at, at TFI, as we call it, in the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. So I joined TFI, I think, in about 2006 um, as an intern. And um, you know, at, at this time, it was a very kind of early st- stages, very shortly after September 11th. And, and the U.S. government was kind of initially crafting its response to uh, still crafting its response to September 11th and how how it could kind of use the levers of um, financial policy to try to crack down on things like terrorist financing. And so uh, over the years, I was involved in, in policy making around those types of issues. You know, how can we design uh, policies that make it harder for terrorists to use the fi- international financial system? How can we do things like leverage uh, economic and financial sanctions to make it harder for a country like North Korea to finance its WMD program. And I did that for about uh, six years uh, at the U.S. Treasury and had a lot of really great experience as part of that and got to work with very smart policymakers, people in Washington. Um, and in 2012, I, I left and I began working as a consultant, um, advising financial institutions on how to comply with anti-money laundering regulations. So uh, I I guess I went from being kind of the rule setter and the one setting out how, um, you know, what regulation should apply that, that um, you know, businesses like banks should follow to, to ensure that they're not facilitating terrorist financing or money laundering. So I went from writing those rules to kind of helping people comply with those rules. And um, you know, that was 2012, 2013, I guess, after a couple of years after Bitcoin had been launched, and, and I was vaguely familiar with Bitcoin, but um, it wasn't something I had paid an enormous amount of attention to. And then I think around 2013, um, as part of my consulting work, I started hearing from cryptocurrency businesses, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges, mostly in the U.S. and Europe, who are saying, um, you know, regulators are starting to come to us now. We're hearing from the U.S. Treasury saying we need to comply with anti-money laundering laws. Uh, what do we do? And so that was really kind of the first time I started uh, really engaging the cryptocurrency space in, in real detail. And um, I guess long story short, I kind of fell down the rabbit hole from there and dealing with things at kind of the intersection of cryptocurrency and anti-money laundering counter-terrorist financing policy uh, and how it impacts the current cryptocurrency industry became a growing component of my work. And I joined Elliptic about a, a year and a half ago, or just under that, uh, 14 months ago. Um, as it was kind of a natural evolution in that process of, of my career development, I suppose, uh, in trying to understand how government policy impacts the crypto space. Um, at Elliptic, we basically build tools that and solutions, software solutions, uh, as well as data solutions that enable regulated businesses, so cryptocurrency exchanges and banks and other financial institutions to comply with their anti-money laundering regulations. Uh, and anti-money laundering requirements. Uh, and that can take the form of a forensic software that enables a cryptocurrency exchange to trace the flow of cryptocurrencies belonging to its customers and to determine whether those funds may be going to or have come from an illicit source like a dark web marketplace. Or uh, solutions, we actually released one today, a sort of data solution for banks that can help um, give them more confidence in providing bank accounts to cryptocurrency businesses. So, um, yeah, it's been a long and winding journey. Um, and uh, long story short, um, you know, I had the good luck to kind of be 
uh, around U.S. policymaking in, in, at a time when it was evolving very quickly in the realm of anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing have managed to kind of take that into the crypto space. So it's, it's been a, an interesting kind of meeting of worlds, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And let's dive a little bit deeper into the money laundering thing. There's a lot of people here in crypto that, you know, we're very used to things being, you know, free and open. And then, you know, last year, all this anti-money laundering stuff started popping up and requiring everybody to identify themselves. And there was a, a, a faction, you know, there was really anti-anti-money laundering regulations, but not because they were pro-terrorism. But I think a lot of people were concerned, you know, what is this list that says who can and can't buy crypto and how do people end up on that list? They might be concerned that they could tweet the wrong thing or, you know, maybe they, they posted uh, something back on MySpace that gets scoured later and, um, you know, they've become an enemy of the state somehow. Can you shed some more light, A, first on what is money laundering and B, how does someone end up on this naughty list and who maintains that list? Sure. So, so money laundering is really the the process of taking the proceeds of illicit activity and trying to clean them uh, and and profit from those illicit proceeds. Whether it's something like drug trafficking, uh, human trafficking, all sorts of crimes. The list is long. Name crimes. If you are profiting from a crime and you take that take funds related to that crime and attempt to move it through the financial system and then obfuscate it, uh, you're engaged in, in the crime of money laundering. And, you know, there's sometimes um, an argument I hear, especially on the crypto community at times, um, that, you know, money laundering is a victimless crime. And I, I can't imagine that anything being further from the truth. Um, when people are moving the proceeds of crime, like human trafficking or bribery and corruption, things like child sexual exploitation, uh, really heinous, heinous crimes. People are profiting from and attempting to hide those funds. There are absolutely victims behind that activity. So money laundering is enormous in scale. Um, you know, by many estimates, you know, when there have been attempts to kind of figure out how much money is laundered through the global financial system, you know, the estimates are somewhere around two trillion dollars annually. It's a, a, a astronomical number. It's huge. Um, so the, the international financial system is contaminated with dirty money. And, you know, that that fund that funding can take quite a number of forms. Um, it is overwhelmingly through the formal financial sector, so primarily through the banking sector, where most financial activity takes place. Uh, a lot of it involves cash, which maybe we get more into the question of anonymity, you know, sort of the truly anonymous uh, financial product uh, is still cash is really a favored sort of payment. You know, cash is really kind of the favored method for for moving funds for many criminals still, even in sort of increasingly technological world. But lots of alternative payment methods are used to launder fund as well, and that can include cryptocurrencies. So when funds go from an illicit source in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, like if a ransomware attacker steals funds from in, from victims and then attempts to cash those funds out in exchange. That's money laundering. You know, someone who's selling drugs on a dark web marketplace uh, profits from that activity and attempts to move those funds and cash them out. 
they're engaged in money laundering. So at the U.S. Treasury and among global regulators or regulators across the world, uh, stopping money laundering is one of the is the fundamental principle to to ensuring the integrity and health of the the international financial sector. And so the notion of combating money laundering is one that goes back a a few decades. Um, And there's an organization a lot of your listeners may have heard about recently that's very relevant to this discussion called the Financial Action Task Force, uh, or the FATF. And the FATF was founded in 1989 by the G7, group of countries, uh, major economies who came together and said that, you know, dirty money flowing through the international financial sector is is a threat to international stability. We need a mechanism for ensuring we all work together to stop it. So they created the FATF, which is a global standard setting body for all things related to anti-money laundering regulation and sets out kind of minimum things countries need to be doing to protect the international financial system from threats like money laundering related to human trafficking or terrorist financing and all that stuff. So there's there's a sort of norm that exists in international relations now that countries need to make it an absolute priority to stop money laundering, not only to protect their countries from threats, security threats and criminal activity, um, but to protect the international financial system as a whole. And in June of this of this year, the FATF issued extensive guidance to countries around the world, basically telling them that they need to ensure that cryptocurrency activity is regulated for anti-money laundering purposes, and that they need to ensure that um, they're doing they're regulating cryptocurrencies in an effective way. And this comes, you know, for most of cryptocurrency's history, there's been very little regulation around it. You know, it gets described as the Wild West, and that's that's largely been true to date. Um, The U.S. first uh, issued regulation or issued guidance um, requiring that cryptocurrency exchanges uh, and other businesses apply anti-money laundering laws, like the requirement to know who your customer is, to collect some identification about them, to know what they're doing with their transactions. Um, The U.S. did that back in 2013. And, but for, for the past several years, it's really been one of very few countries around the world to have proactive steps to regulate crypto for anti-money laundering purposes. And so the FATF um, this past year sort of said enough of that. Um, crypto is getting big enough now. All countries around the world really need to have some regulation in place to kind of mitigate some of the risks around money laundering and cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and I think there is a, uh, a recognition that you know, as cryptocurrency has just become more and more popular, the susceptibility to money laundering in, in cryptocurrencies grows. And I think it's important to, to caveat that, you know, crypto crime gets a lot of attention, but, and, and there are lots of crimes that are committed using cryptocurrencies, but as a, as a percentage, firstly, of all cryptocurrency use, um, criminality is, is relatively small, potentially a few percent of all crypto activity involves illicit activity. And if you think back to that number I mentioned where, you know, potentially $2 trillion of global finance is, is you know, is illicit, um, you know, cryptocurrencies, I think the current market cap is, is a few hundred billion, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's kind of a drop in the bucket, so, so to speak. And so, it's, you know, it's, it's a relatively small percentage. So, you know, 
cryptocurrency as a percentage of the whole globally in terms of illicit financial activities is not much, but it's seen as an emerging threat and governments want to make sure that um, criminals can't get too good at laundering funds with cryptocurrencies. So that prompted the FATF to tell countries around the world, you need to regulate this stuff. Now, now what does that mean when we say countries are regulating cryptocurrencies for, for anti-money laundering purposes? Well, I think, you know, despite a common perception, it doesn't mean that the government's going to come and just take away, you know, your wallet uh, with, for no reason. Uh, or it's going to prevent you as an individual user from just accessing cryptocurrencies or sending a peer-to-peer transaction. Um, that's not what it aims to do. The focus of regulation and anti-money laundering regulation is on certain gatekeepers to the crypto ecosystem that enable users to access the ecosystem. So there's no attempt via these types of measures to shut down Bitcoin, which would be impossible because it's decentralized. Governments aren't attempting to do that. What they are attempting to do is say, and are doing, is saying that, look, if you are a business like, say, Coinbase, an exchange, or if you provide Bitcoin ATMs, or if you're issuing an ICO, or if you're a payment processor that enables crypto payments, basically, if you're engaging in the types of financial services that are regulated in the fiat world, but just kind of mirrored in the crypto world, you need to be subject to regulation. So if you're a company like Coinbase, you are expected to know who your customers are, to know something about where their transactions or their funds are coming from, uh, that they're not dealing with illicit sources of, of activity. And that if you do spot activity that you think is maybe related to criminality, you need to be able to report that to law enforcement. So when we talk about um, crypto regulation, we're not really talking about building lists per se, typically to 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 keep the average person out. What we're talking about is is putting obligations on certain businesses so that they can act as kind of gatekeepers who can keep criminals from accessing cryptocurrencies too easily. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto101. Thank you. There's two schools of thought behind crypto. Uh, one believes in financial privacy and freedom, and the other believes in transparency and accountability. Do you think these beliefs are mutually exclusive, or can there be a coexistence or a balance between them? Uh, I definitely think there can be a balance. Um, I think there are certainly points of tension, and this doesn't this doesn't just exist in the uh, crypto world. Uh, it's it's a problem in the mainstream financial institution as well. You know there are points of tension. Um, so you know if you take something like the requirement, you know one of the fundamental pillars of anti money laundering regulation, and and that sits at the kind of the heart of what organizations like the FATF do is you know KYC as we call it, know your customer. So if you're a regulated business like a cryptocurrency exchange, if you're a bank. Western Union or something like that, 
you you um any any regulated financial business needs to know who their customers are. So I need to know, you know, I'm talking, you know, if if, if Bryce comes along and opens up an account at my bank, I need to, you know, know who he is. I need to know it's Bryce. I need to see some identification that he is who he is. And he's not, you know, a someone on a terrorist watch list that he's, you know, he, he is who he claims to be and isn't someone who's maybe attempting to conceal his identity or conceal what he's trying to do. And you need to know the source of funds as well. Yeah. And, and where is coming, funds coming from? If you walk into a bank with $1,000 worth of cash, I want to know where did that come from? Um, and can you give me some evidence of that? And if you can't, we might need to dig a little deeper. So, you know, those concepts are kind of pivotal to the notion of anti-money laundering. And you know, there, there are some tensions there with privacy, obviously. If banks hold your data, you know, as a customer and their systems are hacked, you know, your, your personal identifying information can be compromised. And so, you know, that's why there are emerging and, and uh, very powerful pieces of legislation already out there, things like uh, a regulation out there, things like GDPR, the general data protection uh, measures in the European Union, which say that companies that collect personal data, companies like banks and other financial institutions, you know, if they're collecting that personal data, they need to make sure that they can protect the integrity of it. And they can be penalized very, very severely if they don't. So these tensions between the objectives of, of money laundering and, and absolute privacy certainly exist, but there are measures to try to balance them. Now, you know, in the crypto world, I guess where that that, that tension becomes very, very stark is kind of in, in the technologies themselves. You have cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which are often publicly portrayed and described as anonymous and untraceable, but in fact are nothing of the sort. I think it's it's actually probably, you know, you, Bitcoin may be the most traceable and transparent financial ecosystem that's ever been designed. Because transactions are recorded on the public blockchain, uh, information about which party is transacting with whom is all there live on the crypto. Uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain and on other blockchains as well, whether it's Ethereum. And because of the characteristic characteristics of those blockchains, um, they're more accurately described as pseudonymous rather than anonymous. Um, you sort of see an alphanumeric you know, indicator of who's dealing with whom. But if you can attribute that, you know, that crypto address to a real-world identity, you can know a tremendous amount about who's transacting with whom uh, in, in the Bitcoin world. And that's part of what we do at Elliptic. Uh, is not to tr- attribute individuals, you know, your Bryce or, or Aaron's um, identities to, to crypto addresses. That's not what we do. What we do is attribute addresses that we know belong to illicit actors uh, on the Bitcoin and Ethereum and other blockchains and provide that information to regulated businesses. So if we have teams of analysts who look to uncover whether certain Bitcoin addresses belong to, say, a dark web marketplace or a cyber criminal network or potentially a a North Korean entity involved in an exchange hack. And we uh, analyze information to to determine... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And how those actors are using certain cryptocurrency addresses. Uh, and we provide that information in the form of software solutions to our customers, regulated cryptocurrency businesses, so they can make informed decisions about whether you know customers' source of funds may be from an illicit entity. So, you know, I think I certainly think people sometimes, when it comes to that traceability and transparency, there, there are reasonable concerns. You know, um, th- there's limited privacy in crypto in, in certain cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and you know, there are attempts things like you know certain privacy layers, a Lightning Network, to to surmount that. Um, hey, David. But, but I think ultimately, yeah. I have a quick question, kind of like just but just before we breeze over this. Is it possible that like, I mean, for instance, if you put your money, your, your Bitcoin on an exchange, you're not necessarily getting that same Bitcoin back when you withdraw it. So is it possible that we could um, unknowingly be getting money from a dark source or from an illicit source? And, you know, when we go to cash it out at Coinbase, they could be like, hey, you know, this is a dirty Bitcoin or whatever. And you're like, what the heck? I had no idea. I played by the rules the whole time. I never did anything bad, but it just so happens that you know, I got mixed up in this just because chance. Yeah, absolutely. And the way we work with um, exchanges and the way our software solutions work is not to say in that instance, in every single instance, you know, Coinbase or whomever, you should shut down Bryce's account. That's, that's not the objective. The, the way our solutions work is to kind of looking at various factors, um, like the amount, uh, sort of the distance from the original source give those exchanges risk scores that help them to look at a transaction and say, well, what's the likelihood that this is actually something illicit or that versus the fact that it could just be an innocent person. And then the, then that exchange can use that information to just make some informed decisions. They can call you up and ask you say, Hey, you know, just wanted to ask about this. And you say, Oh, you know, I, I had no idea. And they say, Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, not your fault. Go ahead. Keep going. So, you know, our objective in providing that information isn't to make it impossible for, for legitimate people to, in, to continue to deal in the, in, the, um, in, in the crypto space. You know, we, we want them to be able to. Our, our objective is to provide regulated businesses with the information they need to be able to protect themselves from especially direct exposure to illicit entities and, and so that they can provide their services with trust and integrity. And so, you know, the, of course, there are some tensions there with privacy, but, you know, we as a company, we, we never handle anyone's personal information. Um, you know, we are merely providing a software solution that enables exchanges to make informed decisions about risk. Now, you know, there are other points of tension in, in the crypto space, like the fact that some cryptocurrencies aren't very traceable. Uh, privacy coins like Monero, for example, or Dash or Zcash, where the characteristics of their blockchain um, make it so that we're really not able to, to trace transactions, certainly not in the same way uh, that we do with Bitcoin and other more transparent coins. And, you know, there's some question, there's a lot of debate going on at the moment as to whether those technologies can be offered in a way that's compatible with um, anti-money laundering requirements. You know, the fact that you can't really obtain any information about where those funds are going to or have come from whether that's consistent with what regulators are trying to achieve. And it's a topic of incredible debate at the moment. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, certainly our objective at a company like Elliptic isn't to, to 
make everyone's information known. We we want to try to strike a balance between, you know, enabling the average user to be able to just use crypto confidently and safely, uh, while also giving you know businesses the the information they need to make sure they're not dealing with really really bad people. So it's a delicate balance, but one very cognizant of. If you go sign up on an exchange today, there's a pop-up that says, if you're a citizen of this country, you know, you're not allowed. And that list of countries has grown 20, 30 long. And you start to think about that and you say, well, the United States is on that list, by the way, if you're listening. And you start to think, you know, cryptocurrency was invented as a tool for citizens to store their wealth and transact without um, fear of punishment from totalitarian governments and dictatorships. So citizens, good, honest citizens of places like Iran and Sudan and North Korea and Venezuela who are not caught up in illicit activities are essentially punished the same way. And I'm hoping that with new tools like Elliptic and other blockchain analysis, maybe uh, that can change in the future. Do you think it will be possible for uh, exchanges to one day be able to tell uh, the difference between uh, a good citizen and a criminal in some of these more unstable regions? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, they're they're able to do that. Um, and, you know, different exchanges have different requirements based upon where they're located. You know, if, if you're a U.S. exchange, there are very strict prohibitions against dealing with Iran, for example. Um, that is just a fact of U.S. policy. But I think, you know, you, you point to sort of, your point gets to, I guess, another issue there, which is, um, you know, obviously crypto is kind of created with the idea of we'll, we'll kind of bypass regulation. And I think there are a couple problems with that um, sort of hope that, that was maybe originally there in crypto, but, but things that I don't think are necessarily uh, counter to broader adoption of crypto. So, you know, firstly, I, th- I think we found that despite the fact that crypto is decentralized, there are certain hooks where regulators can kind of kind of sink their uh, sink their claws into certain you know more centralized components of the ecosystem, like exchanges that can be regulated. But I think the other thing is you know the sort of notion of this you know decentralized, totally unregulated financial ecosystem. It, it really had never emerged. And one of the things we very much find at Elliptic is that, you know, in order for the average user to really kind of, and the average person to want to transact in cryptocurrencies, they need to know that it's safe. Uh, they need to know that it's legitimate. And regulation is very, very important to giving the average person a sense of trust in in cryptocurrencies and giving them trust that, you know, if I'm going to an exchange, that this exchange isn't just going to steal my money and run away with it, but they're sub, you know, they're they're being, um, you know, overseen by a regulator who's going to hold accountable, and you know that these exchanges are doing things that are meaningful and they're keeping criminals off their platform, so I can use it safely. So, you know, it, I guess it's sometimes easy to 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 look at what crypto is attempting to achieve and think that regulation must be a total barrier to adoption, but um, I certainly think think differently. Um, I think regulation can ultimately be a long-term enabler for crypto adoption insofar as it um, creates more confidence. I completely agree. And that's one of the things that a lot of uh, the guests say is, you know, that one of the most bullish things that can happen for crypto, uh, you know, and blockchain more broadly is just getting regulatory clarity. 
and court precedent. Um, and, you know, recently, I mean, I guess it was, I'm trying to remember, it was probably summer or spring of uh, 2017. There was this uh, John Doe summons that the IRS put on Coinbase and said, we want all of your user information. A John Doe summons, for, for those who are listening, it's just this broad-based, you know, give us all your user data. And then a court stepped in um, and said that it was unethical and you had to narrow it. But, you know, could you kind of give us, I mean, maybe a play-by-play or your your take on what was going on there and, and what precedent it, what precedents that kind of set? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, a lot of your listeners may know, you know, cryptocurrencies in the U.S. at least and some other places are, you know, subject to taxation, especially on gains or losses. So if, you know, you buy crypto and sell it for a profit a few months later, you got to pay capital gains on, on that um, profit. And so, you know, one, one concern, you know, the IRS and other um, tax authorities have had is that, well, can, you know, people make use of this new technology to sort of circumvent the formal financial system and to evade taxation and, you know, earn money and just not pay tax on it. And so, you know, the IRS as part of that initiative, so, uh, you know, back around 2015, 2016, I think it was, um, you know, as part of their investigations and trying to understand how crypto might be used to um, evade taxation, looked at Coinbase and, and said, you know, you've got lots and lots of users. You've got like half a million users and we're getting very few tax filings from anybody with an account at Coinbase, you know, acknowledging that they need to pay tax and we just we think that must mean that there's a lot of people there who owe tax and aren't and so that was kind of the irs's perception i guess and they as part of that issued this john doe summons which as you noted uh basically said to coinbase give us all the records and on you know half a million of your customers extremely broad requests and uh Coinbase fought back and they, they challenged the matter in court and said, this is really unreasonable. Uh, there's no grounds to think that the average Coinbase user is engaged in tax evasion. And the court, as you mentioned, uh, found some merits in um, Coinbase's argument and said, look, the request can go ahead, but it needs to be much more restricted. And so um, I think in the end, they said, you, you know, the IRS can't have access to 500,000 customer records uh, but they could have access to, I think it was about 14,000 and or something like that. And uh, I'm forgetting the exact numbers, but um, the, but that they, um, and that it would apply to those customers who are dealing in, in much larger volumes of activity and where there might be some more substantial and real concern about, you know, actual substantial tax evasion. So, you know, Coinbase got, got something of a, at least a partial victory there and for privacy and, you know, I think it does go to show that those tensions between financial privacy and and regulation do exist, um, but there are some some backstops and means to um, you know try to ensure that they get you know they become out of control. And so you know that that was an instance of where um, you know I think in the end the the result was was largely reasonable. But um, yeah, you know there, there are absolutely um, you know, there's no question that, you know, when you deal with a regulated business, you are giving them, you know, you're saying we're your customer and, you know, in right. the U S the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has ruled going back many years 
um, that, you know, your bank records are not subject to absolute private, you know, not don't warrant absolute privacy. Hmm. You know, you're, you're a customer of, a, of an institution and, you know, they can be subpoenaed and they can be asked to turn over your records. And those, those requests have to be reasonable. Um, they can't, they can't be you know, too broad, but um, they can be there. Interesting. Um, so, and kind of, kind of to wrap things up here, I, I'm really curious about how, um, for instance, all these new technological things that can enhance privacy on, you know, Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. I know, you know, Litecoin is going to come out with Mimblewimble and confidential transactions, and then we have, you know, the Liquid Network and the Lightning Network, and there's all these technological breakthroughs that are designed to enhance privacy of cryptocurrency. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I, I mean, you know, I think the transparency that's inherent in Bitcoin is extremely important to that notion of, again, of confidence and trust. I think for governments to get confident with technologies like cryptocurrencies, they need to have a sense that they can understand something about what's going on. And so I, I think, you know, the, the transparency inherent in Bitcoin has been been very, very important to governments, um, you know, accepting cryptocurrencies to some degree. Um, you know that said, it you know there there are there's no question that Bitcoin and, and other transparent coins are not you know very very private. Um, you know your information is out there, and you know there are cases of people who you know criminals have managed to find them through the public blockchain and track them down, come steal their private keys and that kind of thing. Um, so that, you know there are legitimate concerns about it, and and any user of any cryptocurrency needs to take you know basic steps to protect themselves. Um, and ensure their own privacy to a reasonable degree. So you know, I, and I think it's so. I think it's natural that that there are efforts to try and bring some additional layers of privacy to cryptocurrency transactions. And you know, I think there's something of a gradient. It's it's not always total transparency on one end and total opacity on the other. Um, you know, Zcash, for example, enables both. Um, private and transparent transactions. Um, so there are potential kind of gradations of, of transparency and privacy uh, out there. But I think, you know, f- for those who are operating, you know, those you know, people who are new to the technology among your listeners or, or people operating in the space, you know, I guess the, who are interested in privacy, you know, the one thing I would kind of urge them to think about is really think about what's in the interest of crypto adoption and, and how can we strike a balance between privacy on the one hand, and trying to ensure that this new technology can grow with, um, with the confidence of, of, of everyone out there. Um, you know, and I think some of these efforts to develop, you know, some privacy enhancing technologies, you know, they, they've got real merit behind them and, and the industry should, you know, and, and innovators out there should definitely consider, you know, consider how they can protect privacy. But I think as they develop, you know, this technologies develop, developers should be thinking about, you know, how can we do this in a way that, you know, where the technology itself is designed that protects user privacy, while maybe also, you know, meeting some of the objectives of regulators, you know, not making things so indecipherable that, say, a, a law enforcement agency could never learn anything. Um, you know, maybe having tools for auditability, even where transactions were initially private, where they could be retroactively, you know, information could be accessed on a selective basis. Interesting. And I think, you know, Crypto space is filled with really interesting, you know, and, and super smart people. And, and there are some projects among the space, I think, that have 
uh, you know, are attempting to, to look at how you strike that balance. And so, you know, I think, think for the, the privacy conscious people, you know, who might be listening in, I, I guess, you know, my advice would be, don't think it is as total either or. There, yeah. there are some shades of gray in between. And I think there, there can be a balance. Awesome. No, really, really, really smart. And we appreciate that color. Um, and, and in closing, uh, we got a couple questions that we'd like to ask every guest that comes on the show. Um, the first, the, the first of the last questions is, you know, besides the company that you're working for and, you know, say to avoid any conflicts of interest, any companies that you might be invested in, what is one company that you think is having the most tremendous impact in the crypto and blockchain world? Oh, wow. There are so many. <laughs> Could only be you're make, one. Um, you're making it really, really, really difficult to me, for me. Um, so I'm going to... I'll go out of them and point to one who, who maybe aren't quite in the world yet, but I think are going to be soon and are going to have an enormous impact. And that's Facebook, which is with the announcement of their you know, Libra cryptocurrency and Calibra wallet. I personally think that the prospect of a major corporation like Facebook issuing its own coin and making it widely available to many users would be groundbreaking in terms of adoption. And I think if Facebook can do that in a way that satisfies regulators, which I think they can, and I think they will, they can really go a long way in terms of meeting that sort of middle ground between wider spread adoption and meeting the objectives of what regulators are trying to accomplish. Yeah. And, and I think Libra, when when it is eventually, because I, you know, not just if, but I think it will eventually be launched. I think the impact of that will be enormous. And I, and even the fact that Facebook are, are, have talked about this publicly is, you know, we're already hearing all sorts of other corporations talk about, you know, we need to start investigating our other, you know, our use of our own tokens. Yeah. Um, and Mark Zuckerberg has been, you know, in the, in the Senate talking about this stuff. It's kind of crazy, huh? And, um, and I think, uh, you know, in response to this, you know, central banks are now thinking, well, uh-oh, if, if Facebook can issue our own their own coin, what does that mean for us? And do we need to maybe develop our own digital euro or digital dollar or digital yen? And so the impact of that, just even the, the idea of Libra has been tremendous. So that'd be my number one at the moment. But a bit of a cop out because they're not quite as quite as a quite as in, in the industry, uh, immersed in the industry just yet. But uh, I think the impact is is already enormous, just the fact that they're looking at this. Yeah, 100%. You're right. And that is uh, an answer that a lot of people have said. They really have made quite an impact just by what they're trying to do, let alone what they may do in the future. Uh, next question is, I guess, who's one person you admire in the crypto space? Oh, wow. Are there, are there difficult... Um, Another difficult question. Um, Here at Crypto 101, we do not like easy questions. Yeah. Um, it's just, again, too many. You know, I love, uh, well, one person I just love hearing talk from the crypto space is Vitalik Buterin, you know, the founder of, um, uh, uh, developer of Ethereum. I, he's someone I can just listen to all day long. And, um, you know, he, he's an interesting, he's, he's such an interesting character and, and such a smart guy. I mean, I love hearing him speak, you know, the panel circuit and conferences and stuff. And, um, you know, um, like it kind of, I, I just occurred to me, you know, I, I remember seeing like something he did on Twitter, I think, where he said, um, you know, I've been spending quite a bit of time talking to regulators and it's, it's really kind of turned my perspective upside down. I'm finding that many regulators are more open-minded 
than a lot of people in the crypto industry. <laughs> and you know, a lot of them are more willing to have meaningful discussions about things like privacy and security and transparency than lots of people in the crypto industry. And uh, I just thought, always thought that was a really interesting insight, but he, he's someone I can just listen to in a space talk for hours kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's, a great, it's a great choice. And I, I completely echo that sentiment. Uh, and, and the last question we have is, you know, since this is Crypto 101, this might be the first podcast that a lot of people in the space have ever listened to. Um, so what would you, uh, what would be, you know, a word of wisdom or word of advice, uh, to the new people in the space, the crypto curious, you know, I'd suggest thinking about what do you kind of, as the average person, where do you want this technology to go? What, what, what do you, what are the things you need as a consumer of financial services? What are the things that, that you want to see be better about the financial system? You know, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about you know, can crypto fulfill the sort of decentralized, unregulated dream? And and if even if it can't do that, I think this notion of a, a more a faster, open, more more effective and efficient financial kind of ecosystem is still very much alive. And you know, at, at Elliptic, you know, we talk a lot about crime and dealing with regulation, but really the the reason we build the tools we do and, and around kind of regulatory compliance and, and risk mitigation. It's, it's precisely so that broader objective can happen so that crypto can ultimately thrive and that, you know, that, that more open financial system can be realized. And, you know, ultimately that will be driven by the demand of people, people who use the technology, you know, people who maybe want things like Libra. And so I think if you're entering the space and, and starting to, you know, kind of play around with the technology or use it for the first time, you know, really think about like, you, you know, what's not been working for me when it comes to my use of banks and additional financial sector and, and what can this new technology do for me and, and how can I demand more of it from the people who are developing all these great ideas? Because um, that's that's really kind of where I think the demand will come from and how the ecosystem will grow is, is by people showing that they want and need the technology. So right. I think anyone coming to it should be really thinking about like, you know, what can this offer to me and, and how can I kind of, you know, help the broader ecosystem realize that. Well put, well put. And David, thank you so much for spending uh, your evening with us here at Crypto 101 and for giving us such a good insight into all the work that you guys are doing over at Elliptic. Yeah, no, thanks a lot guys for having me. It's really fun and uh, really appreciate you having me on the, on the podcast. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Crypt Nation, just a friendly neighborhood reminder to go to www.crypto2020summit.com and register for your free conference pass to the online summit, Crypto 2020 Summit. We got 60 speakers who are giving their bold predictions for prices and bold predictions for uh, technological developments in this crazy crypto space. So if you want to be the first to know the big news and you want to make sure that you're in touch and in tune, go to Crypto2020Summit.com right now and register for free. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.